You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi, guys. So this is a show, sort of, but I'm just going to be me for most of it. Um, Have you seen the Fred Armisen one-man show bit on SNL? I'm hoping it doesn't feel like that. Uh, so it'll be a little more performancey than maybe you're used to on a Sunday morning, although with Jonathan, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but generally, this will be the tone. Uh, I'm not going for a Tony. Uh, I'll be doing it in Manhattan next week, so I will. Uh, uh, but I've done this off-Broadway. I've done it in Vegas, which is very off-Broadway. Um, so uh, I have a unique dual... Um, uh, I've lived two different lives, basically. I have a seminary degree uh, uh, in theology, uh, studied it, was a church planter, started a church in Las Vegas, uh, and then, uh, because of various things, decided to stop doing that and went into performing and uh, studied with the Second City, doing improv, and did uh, comedy and improv on the Las Vegas Strip for three years, and then in Los Angeles, and then went back and tried church work, and it didn't work again, and here I am. So, uh, I've spoken here a couple times uh, and very excited to do this for you. This particular uh, show, it's really a, a, a long story, uh, is rooted in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, and it was developed actually not for churches. So it's, it's sort of rare that I do it on a Sunday morning. It, it's rare that I do it uh, for a church, but this is in a theater, so it's kind of both uh, for me. And uh, it, was, it was developed uh, purposefully because of where I am in my spiritual journey. It was developed for people that both uh, have some sort of very personal religious connection with the story of Jesus and also for those who do not. Uh, so I wrote it with uh, many things in mind, including some of my atheist and Muslim and Buddhist friends who didn't have any idea what the story of Jesus was about. So wherever you are on your journey, uh, I hope that it helps you just sort of understand who this Jesus person was, at least the perspective as best I understand it from this one writer that we commonly called John. It very well may have been written by someone else, but church history has has said that it was written by uh, the disciple John. One of the important things to know about this particular story is uh, of the uh, canonical gospels, which are the four gospels that made it into the New Testament, which could be a whole show on how that happened. It was crazy. Uh, But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Matthew, Mark, and Luke were very similar. They're called the synoptics, which means similars, because it's as if they used the, orig- the same original source material. They sort of, if you were grading papers as a professor, you might pull these three aside and say, hey, this is, this is, somebody's copying off somebody here, because uh, it's so similar. But John is completely different. It's about 85% different than the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it was written later on. So it was written most probably by the second generation of Christians. So it gives us the opportunity to see uh, not necessarily the earliest story of Jesus, but what were the second generation followers saying when they looked back in history, say 40, 50 years, at the story of Jesus. Uh, And one of the things we see is that John, I think, is very masterfully written. Whoever wrote John, and we're going to call him or her, John, uh, knew what they were doing. He was a master of the Greek language. As a matter of fact, it starts off with some of, some of the most sort of interesting, beautiful poetry uh, of the ancient world in the first chapter of John. And then he abandons poetry and never goes back to it. 
uh, starts telling a story. Uh, but he starts off uh, with poetry slash philosophy around this one word. And the word he sort of riffs on at the beginning is the word, word. So uh, it's, it's, what, it's the Greek word logos. It's where we get words like logarithm um, or logo. But it means um, word, but it means more than word. To the Greeks, so the non-Hebrews, the non-Jewish people, um, the word logos meant to them something like this. The uh, unexplainable mystery of the universe that holds everything together. They would call it the logos. There's this story about philosophers, Greek philosophers, when they would take on their apprentice students that they would teach them the first day of class, they would teach them how to string a bow, which you wouldn't expect to do your first day of philosophy class. And so they'd have a stick and a string, and, uh, and I actually got a tattoo of this in my younger days. Now I tell people I was in a band called Crossbow because I don't want to have to explain it over and over. <laughs> and they're like, it's not a crossbow. I'm like, I know, I was, I was drunk or whatever. So. <laughs> but here's the long one-minute explanation of what my tattoo means. Uh, they would get basically a stick and a string, and they would be taught as thinkers to make a bow out of it, and, and it's just a stick and a string, but when you make a bow, it's two things. It's a weapon, it can also be a musical instrument. So it's powerful, it's beautiful, and then the philosopher would say, this is your task as a thinker, as a professional philosopher. Your job is to find the string that ties the ends of life together, that makes life powerful and makes it beautiful, and we're going to call that string the logos. You're going to go on a journey as a thinker to help other people figure out what is this mysterious force that ties the universe together? That's how the Greeks would think about this word, word. John, this gospel was written to the Greeks, but it was also written to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people. And they would have a fascination with the word, word as well, but it would be similar but different. For the, for the Hebrews, word, logos, this word, meant the all-powerful, creative voice of the living God, Yahweh. So in, the, in their earliest scriptures, in the book of Genesis, it begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said with his word, let there be light. Light. They believed that the word of God was the most powerful force in the universe. They believed that creation spawned from the word of this living God. And word became even synonymous many times with them for God. So for the Jews, for the Hebrews, the word is the all-powerful voice of the living God. And for the Greeks, it's the mysterious force that ties the universe together. And John starts to write his book, and this is how he starts it. In the beginning, what's that sound like? Yeah, obviously he's got, it would be like me starting Four score and seven years ago, I bought some Skittles, whatever. Like, <laughs> like well, I, think you're, I think you're borrowing that. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the Greeks would say, in the beginning was the mysterious force that pulls life together. Yeah, we buy that. And the Hebrews would hear, in the beginning was the all-powerful word of God. And of course they believe that. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. They'd both buy that. And the word was God. 
The Hebrews would think, yeah, sort of. And the Greeks would think, which, which one? Which God? And then John goes sideways. And uh, in one sentence is able to be sort of a double heretic. When he says, he was with God in the beginning. Neither the Jews nor the Greeks thought of the Logos as a person. But the whole premise of John's story is going to be that the Logos was fully represented. The mysterious power that pulls the universe together and the all-powerful creative voice of God was represented in a single person. And he's going to name the person. He says, in him was, this is the ultimate theme of his book, in him was life. Real life. And that life was light for all mankind. He came into the world, came to his own people, and though they did, they did not recognize him. If, if the law has come through Moses, he says, grace and truth has come through the Logos, Jesus, the Christ. He names him. Yeshua, the Christ. Christ was not his last name. Joseph and Mary, Christ, did not have Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Christ means king. He's the, he was claiming he's the long-awaited king of the Jews. And as he tells the story, that claim seems to get more and more ridiculous. Because he's, he's nothing like what the Jews wanted in their king. And John goes from his poetry right into the heart of the story, which is also where the synoptics begin. Uh, and it's not with the person of Jesus, but with a man named John. Here's the problem with the Bible. Everybody's named John or Mary. So um, this is not John who wrote the book. We call him John the Disciple or John the Padawan or John the Learner. Okay, Not that John. This is John the baptizer, or John the Baptist. It doesn't mean that he necessarily was more conservative and sat in wooden pews and sang hymns. It has nothing to do with that. This is way before sort of what we would think of as a Baptist today. The, they, he is called the Baptist because he baptized people. And that's a weird word. Most words, when you know this book was written in Greek and it gets translated into English for us, and for whatever reason through church history, there were a couple words that they sort of refused to translate. And they just kept them the Greek words. They made them sound. So this is the word baptizo, which they made baptize. And it literally means to dip or plunge. So you would, um, you know, if you're playing in a pool with a kid, you would baptize them under the water. It doesn't necessarily mean something religious. It just means to dip or plunge. So this is John the dipper, John the plunger, John the baptizer. And he was a weird dude, certified weird. Um, he went out into the wilderness. He had taken a vow to never cut his hair. So as we come upon the person of John, he's now in his 30s. You imagine him sort of Duck Dynasty style with a beard down to his belly button and you know, hair, mangly hair. It says in the synoptics uh, that John went out in the desert and he lived in the desert and his clothes sort of wore off like Survivor or whatever. And that he found a dead camel, so he skinned it. And he started wearing the camel skin around. And then he didn't know, he didn't have a lot of food, so he ate crickets and grasshoppers and wild honey. And this is the sort of guy that when you talk to him, you should expect like a, a locust leg sticking out of his teeth. And a little, yeah, thank you. A little, uh, a little craze in his eyes. I know you don't get this in New York City, but 
<laughs> in other cities, there's like these sidewalk preachers that are just sort of crazy. And I think most people sort of thought of John that way. John had this idea that if we could all just get our act together, if we could all live right, then God would send this king, this Messiah. So he'd go out to the Jordan River and he would just preach. And this was in the days before the internet and Snapchat and all that stuff. This was, uh, this was entertainment somewhat, I think, for people. And John was an entertaining guy. Um, and he had the same sermon every day. It went like this. Repent. Turn from you. Turn from your sin. And turn to God. There is one who is coming after me who will surpass me because he was before me. People didn't get it. You, come here, come here. Do you repent? Do you repent? They would walk up into the water. I think so, I think so. Dip them all the way under and all the way out. More and more people started coming out to him, out into the wilderness, into the river to listen to this crazy man speak. And the Pharisees, who were the rulers of the Jewish people, the religious rulers, they got word of this. If there's one thing religious people hate, it's when they go to another church. So uh, they were like, why, why are these people following this crazy guy and not coming to the synagogue? So they went out to spy on him one day, and that particular day he's preaching this sermon. Repent! Turn from your sin! Turn to God! Who are you? Who said that? Who are you? I'm just a voice in the desert saying, make way for God. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? Come back from the dead. No. There's one who comes after me. I baptize with water. He'll baptize you with wind and fire. John's preaching one day. John's next to him. John the Padawan. John the learner. And this man walks behind the crowd. Repent, turn. He pulls John aside. Look, look, there he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, this other John, John the learner, he just sees a guy. The next day, it's the exact same thing. John, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin. I told you one would come after me who would surpass me because he was before me. Well, John the learner thinks to himself, the guy I've devoted my life to is really into this Lamb of God guy. I can cut out the middleman and start following him and leave crazy John at the river. And so John grabs one of his buddies and they begin to follow this Lamb of God guy. The problem is they don't tell the guy they're following him. So that's stalking. It's super creepy. And they're following him at a distance. And at one point this man we know Jesus, stops and turns to John and his friend and he says, why are you following me? What do you want to know? And making it even more creepy, John says, uh, we just want to know where you sleep at night. <laughs> it's not, you know, he sort of panics. 
And Jesus says, come on, I'll show you. He takes him home where he was staying. Best we can tell, Jesus never actually had a home. He just lived house to house. He was an itinerant preacher. He was poor. He was a peasant. Well, John uh, and his friends spend this time in Jesus' house, and at the end of a full day, they believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so they go and they bring their friends to meet this Jesus, the Lamb of God guy. The first one they bring to him is Simon. Simon is uh, Andrew's brother. Andrew is one of John's buddies. Simon comes in to meet Jesus. And as soon as he sees him, he says, what's your name, son? Simon says, Simon. He says, no, it's not, it's Peter. That's your name. He changes his name. Peter means rock. Simon means I don't know what. Any Simons here? No? It's not, it's not a strong name necessarily, right? Peter, that's a name. Well, first thing we learn about this guy is he changes your name on day one. Maybe it's a gang name. Maybe it's like George, George W. Bush giving people nicknames. I don't know. But uh, he calls him Peter. And then uh, one of the guys goes to get uh, another follower, Nathaniel, and he says, uh, he comes to him, Nathaniel's having lunch under a, a, a tree, and he says, uh, we found the Messiah, come meet him. And Nathaniel says, what do you mean you found the Messiah? He's like, yeah, we've really found him. What's his name? Jesus. Well, that makes sense. It's actually Joshua. Jesus means God saved us. Okay. Where's he from? That's the thing. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth was like a hillbilly town in the middle of the mountains. About 400 people lived there, best we can tell. People from this mountain region had a thick mountain accent. Would have sounded Appalachian to us. I was born in Kentucky. This is the part of the program I can say anything I want about this. Uh, Jesus' Jesus's accent to, to those around him would have sounded very uneducated. He was a mountain man. He was a redneck hillbilly. And he... That's how he would have sounded to people. And this, this guy says, you know, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was actually a, a saying. Like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth was a saying. And if you wanted to sort of curse someone out, you would call them a Nazarene. It's kind of like saying the F word. And so he says, then you just got to meet him. And so he finally convinces him to come. And as he walks in, Jesus, before Nathaniel can say anything, says, There he is, a true Israelite in whom nothing is false. And Nathaniel looks, he says, what's the matter, son? I saw you under that tree right before you were called. Saw you out eating lunch. He's blown away and he falls on his knees and he worships him. And Jesus says, get up, man. We're going to see bigger things than this. (laughs) If you're way into Jesus, that may make you feel uncomfortable. Let me explain why. You're prejudiced. So... uh, (laughs) Let's say, God forbid, you have a, a brain tumor and you need it operated on, you need it taken out, and I happen to know the best brain surgeon in the entire nation. He's a friend of mine. He doesn't take on a lot of people, but since we're close, I get you a meeting with him, and I go with you, and we go into his office and knock on the door, and he says, come on in here, son. We're going to get that thing right out of there. 
<laughs> you're going to want the second best brain surgeon in America. <laughs> and it's only because you don't think people that talk that way can be smart, but they can. Jesus would have battled this his whole life. He's from Nazareth. I mean, it's like he's from West Virginia or the hills of Kentucky or Tennessee. And he's going to spend most of his life dealing with the religious, religious elite who would have been the equivalent of the Ivy League educated, proper diction sort of guys. Well, he calls these 12 disciples together, and the first thing they do is they go to uh, a wedding, which you might not expect when you sign up to follow the Christ, the promised king. They're calling him the son of God. Some sort of divinity is in him, they say. And the first thing he takes them in religious training is to a party. Weddings in that time would have lasted seven days. So they actually skip the ceremony, which I generally think is a good call anyway. And (laughs) they get there like day three or four. It's at a place called Canaan, Galilee. It's not far from where Jesus grew up. And they show up, and there's some sort of family connection with Jesus that we don't, it's not explained and we don't understand. But what we do see is that Jesus' mother, who we will call Mary, though her, she's not named at all in John, Jesus' mother is the wedding coordinator or something. She's in charge of the refreshments. She's in charge of the food and the drinks. And Jesus shows up with 12 fishermen, more or less, to this party uninvited. And I can't imagine that weddings have changed much in the last 2,000 years. So Jesus is on the dance floor and they're playing Journey. Uh, it's loud and everybody's dancing. All Jesus' disciples are there dancing. And Mary comes up to Jesus and she says, Hell, I need a... And he says, What, Mama? I can't hear you. That was a good part. Don't stop. Believe. What? I can't hear you, Mama. Oh, new song. New song. New song. Come on. da 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 it's like you're a chicken, you get it? Your dad, what? I can't, come, come here. Mama, what's the matter? Oy vey. <laughs> it seems that we've run out of wine. Someone brought 12 uninvited guests. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Mama. No, I know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, it's not my time. Well, she grabs him by the ear and she brings him into the kitchen. She says, this is my boy, do whatever he says. And she walks away. And uh, the first miracle Jesus is going to perform, he does, even though it says he doesn't want to because of his manipulative mother. (laughs) There are these huge stone jars that the Jews fill with water for ceremonial hand and foot washing. And Jesus says to the attendants, fill those all the way up, fill them with water, and they do. And then he says, uh, take that goblet and dip it in that one and take it to the master's ceremonies and tell him it's wine. You heard my mom. She said, do what I say. Well, tell him it's white wine. <laughs> Go on. They bring the wine to uh, the master's ceremonies, which had been sort of like a DJ. And he tastes it. And he stops the band. Stop! Stop it! Where's Mary? Mary? You bring this out now? This is the best wine we've had all week. 
Normally, people give you the good stuff up front and then start giving you the wine in the box in the middle. Mary saved the best for last. Mazel tov! <laughs> it says that uh, from that point on, that Jesus' disciples put their faith in him. Uh, which sort of makes sense. Because that's a pretty great first day on the job. They're expecting that they're giving themselves, uh, you know, to a life of asceticism, a, a life of, uh, you know, deep sort of spiritual hardship. And uh, they've teamed up with a guy that can bring a kegger whenever he wants. <laughs> this is deep in their tradition, though. The idea was that when Christ would come, when the king would come, that he would bring a great banquet. And that in this great banquet, it says in their scriptures that the food would flow and the wine would flow and it would never end. And so Jesus seems to be saying the banquet started. Here's the thing, though. The next day was different. Jesus takes his disciples to Jerusalem, to the heart of their culture, and he takes them right to the temple. The temple represented many things. It was supposed to represent to the Jews the presence of God on earth. It was supposed to be a place for all nations. It was supposed to be a place where the Jews could open their doors to people of other faiths to come in and explore and learn from their God. But it had become a system to rip off the poor. And there were a handful of people getting very wealthy on the sacrificial system that was created. You would journey to Jerusalem and then you'd have to make an animal sacrifice. And it's kind of like when you go to um, a Yankees or Mets game or something and they get you in, then you have to pay $12 for a hot dog and in some weird, weird way it makes sense, I guess. Uh, maybe in New York it's $22, I have no idea. Um, but you get, in this, you, have, you get in this position where you save up your whole life to just buy a lamb to sacrifice uh, and it may cost three or four times what it used to uh, and, and it's a racket. And Jesus comes to the temple and there's this big courtyard, like several football fields big with the temple in the background. And in this courtyard, it, it becomes like a flea market. And they're selling everything, selling all these animals, exchanging money. And Jesus gets more and more troubled. And his disciples are watching him. This is the guy that just made wine, so they're expecting a good time. He takes off his belt. You. Get those out of here. I said, get them out. I said, get the doves out of here. Go, you, get them. What are you doing? You turned my father's house into a den of robbers. This is to be a place for the nations to worship. You're ripping them off. Get this cow out of here. Well, the Pharisees, the rulers, they notice this as they're watching from the temple. And they come down and they see this madman hillbilly going nuts and they say who are you by what authority do you do this he says you want authority you destroy this temple i'll build it back in three days it's taken decades to build this temple you're going to build it back in three days that's what i said three days i love this book of john but there is a sense in which he's a terrible storyteller because in this moment he says, he was talking about his, his body because he's going to die and raise from the dead. Which is something you should leave till the last chapter, but 
he tells us now that his body will be the temple. But this is a, a forecast of what is to come. Jesus is going to become a threat. He's going to start off as a sideshow in their eyes and be, an, be the ultimate threat to their power, and they're going to kill him. That night, Jesus is staying somewhere in Jerusalem, and he had done a few miracles, helping people see, delivering demons, whatever you make of that, like some things that had people talking. And one of the people interested in him was a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. So he was one of his enemies, if you will. But he was curious. So he wants to talk to Jesus. So because he's embarrassed to talk to him, he goes to him at two in the morning. He finds where he's staying and he knocks on the door while Jesus is asleep. Jesus! Rabbi Yeshua! Jesus, I may be reading in how I would feel at two in the morning if you woke me up. But I think it's fair to assume Jesus isn't excited about this. Yes. May I help you? Yeah, uh, listen. Uh, I've been thinking and watching some of the things you do, and I can't help but think that maybe some of them, a few of them, maybe one of them is from God. And Nicodemus, why are we whispering? Hmm? It's in the middle of the night. What, do you want to know how to enter the kingdom of heaven? Is that what you're asking? Um, sure. Yeah. How do I do that? Uh, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you just have to be born again. What? There's a theme all through John's book of people that interact with Jesus who cannot get metaphor to save their life. And this is the first one. You want me to be what? You want me to go back in my mother's womb and come out again? How is that even possible? Look at this. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You have to be reborn spiritually. He just stares at Jesus like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, aren't you a theology professor? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you have any idea the countless mysteries of heaven I could unleash on you if you could just understand this one thing? You have to be born again. It's like this. We break it down. God, God loves everyone so much that he sent his one and only son that anyone who might believe in him would have life. Real life. God would never send his son into the world to bring death. God sends his son into the world to bring life. Do you understand? He starts to walk into the darkness. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, light has come into the world and you're choosing darkness. On the way back from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Galilee, there's this nation state called Samaria. And the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. They hated each other. 
legitimately racial hatred between the two. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds because they were half-Jewish, which was worse than being Gentile. And the Samaritans hated the Jews for various reasons, historically speaking, too. And they would not speak to each other in public. Uh, A Jew would never eat off a utensil or drink from a cup that a Samaritan had used. And they would not go through each other's territory unless they absolutely had to. So Jews would walk around Samaria when they wanted to get to Galilee, but Jesus walks straight through because he doesn't seem to see this divide. And the disciples follow him. And they get about halfway into Samaria to a place called Sychar, which is sort of like a pit, pit stop on the freeway. And the disciples are starving. They haven't eaten all day. It's 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And they get to this, this hill with a valley with a city below. And there's a well here up, up on the hill. And, and the disciples are starving. So Jesus sends them on into town to buy food. And they're going to bring him something back to eat. Jesus stays by himself. And he, he's resting, leaning against this well where people come to draw water but generally people would do this in the morning or the evening not in the heat of the day and then as he's sitting there all alone he sees a woman uh, from the town who starts to walk up to draw water she has a you know a ceramic pot on her head and she's walking towards Jesus it's obvious obviously she's a Samaritan woman because we're in Samaria and she's going to be able to tell by the way he's dressed and acts that Jesus is a Jewish man We've got sort of three strikes against anything happening in this, in this uh, confrontation, good or bad. They're just culturally, socially not supposed to talk to each other. Uh, Samaritans and Jews don't talk to each other. Men and women in this culture did not talk to each other in public. The only examples would be maybe you would talk to your mother or your sister or your wife, maybe. Um, or if you were position, positioning a prostitute, you might talk to a woman. Turns out on that mark, Maybe someone would talk to this woman, we find out later. And then the third thing is she's got herself some God issues. And the last thing she wants is a spiritual know-it-all. So she ignores Jesus, and he seemingly ignores her. And she comes around, she starts to draw water from behind him. And Jesus breaks every cultural norm in the book. Because he turns to her and he speaks. And it's not just like a tradition that he's breaking. He's a rabbi. I mean, a rogue, weird rabbi, many people would say. But this, if this gets on TMZ or National Enquirer or anything like that, people from a distance see this rabbi talking to this woman. It's scandalous. But he doesn't care. He turns to her and he says, Can I have a drink? You're a Jew. Yeah. yeah. Thirsty Jew. (laughs) Just want a drink. You know, if you knew who asked you for water, you'd ask me for water. And I'd give you magic water. You give me what? What are you talking about, magic water? You, You don't even got a bucket. How are you going to get water out of this well? It doesn't come out of the well. It comes uh, from God. And it gets in your soul. It's living water. And it flows out of every pore of your body. And if you drink the water I give you, you're never thirsty again. You ever met a crazy person and nobody's around? And you think, well, let's give it a shot. (laughs) You never know. So she says, okay, 
I'll take a glass of magic water. He says, oh, I got enough for two. Why don't you go get your husband, bring him back, and I'll give you both some. I don't have a husband, she says. Well, you don't have one now, but you've had five. And the man you're sleeping with isn't your husband, but why don't you get him and come back? That's supposed to be the Jedi mind trick moment when she believes in him, but it's not. She turns the other way because she's got herself some God issues, and she says, Oh, you're a prophet. I get it. Jewish prophet come to Samaria to teach us everything. Well, I got a question. My people, they say we have to worship up here at this well because our fathers started this well. But your people say we have to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And I can't figure out where to worship it all, so I'm not worshiping anything. Where am I supposed to worship, Mr. Prophet Know-it-all? Well, she sort of snaps. Well, uh, technically we've been right, but listen, a, a time is coming. The time's already come. Where true worshipers of God can worship him wherever they are in spirit and truth. She comes around, jar on her head, filled with water, looks him in the eyes and says, I don't understand a single thing you're saying. This is what I believe. My people say there's a Christ coming, a Messiah, that he will come and be our king and he will explain all this stuff to us then. Jesus says, it's me, it's me, and something about the way he said it, something in her, his eyes, she believes, and she drops her jar, and it bursts into all over Jesus. Jesus gets all wet, and she, this the town prostitute, goes running into town, yelling at the top of her voice, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever did. Come meet the Messiah. She's poking her head in people's windows. Hey, Bob, come meet the Messiah. And Bob's wife's like, how do you know her? And he's like, no, don't, don't worry about that, honey. It just seems like something's big going on. Let's go see what's going on. And so now the town prostitute is coming uh, up the hill. And you can imagine all the Samaritans, all of his enemies coming up to see Jesus. And the disciples get back a little before the crowd. And they don't know what's going on, but they've got lunches. They've got submarine sandwiches or whatever. And they're trying to push them on Jesus. Here, Jesus, you should eat something. I don't want to eat. But you said you were hungry. I'm not hungry like that. Don't want to eat. You shouldn't be eating either. Look, 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 look. Look, the fields are white for harvest. Put down the sub, Thomas. Seriously. It's not the time to eat. This is our food. This is our food, Judas. Put it down. (laughs) This is our food to do the will of the Father who sent us. I told you, didn't I tell you that you would drink wine from vineyards you never planted, that you would eat from crops that weren't yours? This is, this is our food. And they gather around him at that well and he stays there for two days and he teaches them. And the first sort of mass conversion to the teachings of Jesus was in Samaria, his enemy territory. One of the townspeople says afterwards, we believe that you're the Christ, not because of the prostitute's testimony, though it was great, but because we have seen and heard for ourselves who you are. He has more Samaritans following him than Jews for a little bit. And then he goes uh, back home and starts to perform some miracles. If you could track the popularity of Jesus in this book, it would look something like this. And it ends really low. But there are moments when he's a certified Galilean rock star. And people, thousands of people want to hear him. 
And in one of these moments, there's, there's at least 5,000 people that are gathered in this field to hear him teach. And obviously this is before uh, countrymen microphones and all that. So Jesus has to walk around and he's teaching. I'm sure the disciples are doing some teaching too. And these people love to hear him teach. He's been teaching all day. He likes to tell these stories, these parables. And he's teaching them about the kingdom of God and what it looks like. Thousands of people. And the sun is starting to set and one of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, we've got to let these people go. This is like, it's kind of like Woodstock, right? Like we've all come out here in nowhere. We've got to get them back home so they can go home and find some dinner. They're, they're hungry. And this, these are largely peasants. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. They have to go figure that out. And Jesus says to the disciples, why don't we just feed them? And they say, well, we don't have any food. It would take tens of thousands of dollars to feed all these people, Jesus. We don't have any food, he says. Well, we, we found a kid. He's got a couple fish and some bread. Okay, bring him to me. Have them all sit down in groups of 50. And they bring him the, the fish and the bread. And he starts to divide it. For hours. Just keeps handing it out. Over and over and over. Of all the miracles Jesus ever does in this story, this is the one that changes the game, culturally speaking, politically speaking. The easiest way to lead a peasant revolt is to feed peasants. That's what's happening. These are men and women and children who don't know where their next meal is coming from that watch with their own eyes this magic man make food and give it to them at no cost. And that's the first day he heard the chant, which went like, Ming, him, king, make him king, make him king, make him king. And he hated it. He wasn't ready for that. He tells the disciples, get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake. I'm going to hide over there. I'll meet you in the morning. And he goes and he hides in the woods. He lets all of them disperse. I love the way John tells this next story as a simple throwaway, that the disciples are on the boat going to the other side of the lake and that uh, Jesus is also going to the other side of the lake on the water, walking on the water. And the disciples see him and they're like, oh, hey, get in the boat. So he gets in the boat. And... <laughs> They end up on the other side of the lake. And Jesus is exhausted. He stayed up all night praying. And he's asleep on this boat. And he wakes up to this. Make him king. Make him king. Make him king. And he, he wakes up. And he, there's 10,000 or more. More than were there before. The entire nation, it would seem, at his beck and call. And the disciples are pretty excited. This is what they've been waiting for. This is their moment to take control. And then they start a new chant. Breakfast, 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 breakfast. pancakes, 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 bacon, bacon. They can't, they can't have bacon. No bacon. And Jesus says to them, are you hungry? Yes, they say. You want breakfast? Yeah. Do you want to eat? 
Yeah, he gets them all fired up. Then he says, you ready to eat? Yeah, then eat me. That's what they do. What's the matter? You said you were hungry. Eat me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood like it's wine. Someone raises their hand. Jesus, this is a hard teaching to understand. What's hard about it? Come up on the boat, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you can have nothing to do with me. They all leave, except the disciples, because they're stuck on the boat. (laughs) There's this really tender moment at the end of that story where Jesus, it would seem, is a little regretful or questioning. Is that the right move? And he looks to Peter and he says, everyone's left, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, no. Only you have words that really give us life. And implied in all that, in that statement was no, but what the heck was that? What was that all about? But we're not going anywhere. Where would we go? We're with you. Well, more people would start following Jesus again. And he would make another trip to Jerusalem and teaching in the temple courts. And the Pharisees became more and more, uh, you know, angry and threatened by Jesus. And they would look for ways to trap him. The idea was that if they could just discredit him, the people would stop following him. Or if they could arrest him, he would go out of the public eye for a while. So they were always looking for something. And then they started manufacturing situations to try to trap him. And this is one of those. Jesus is teaching his followers, and his followers, by the way, were for the most part prostitutes, tax collectors, which were like the Sopranos, mobsters, uh, you know, and people that weren't allowed to worship in the temple because of some physical ailment or something. So it was sort of the very sinful part of society. One day he's teaching these men and women, and there's a ruckus. Uh, people kind of, something going on, like a little riot or something. And as they get closer, you see that it's the Pharisees dressed in their religious garb, and they're pulling someone towards Jesus. And as she gets even closer, you realize it's a woman that she's completely naked, and they're pulling her uh, by her hair, and she's weeping. And they grab her, and they throw her right in front of Jesus. And she's curled in a ball, and she's begging for mercy. And everyone's shocked. Nobody knows what's happening. And these Pharisees, they all gather in a circle around Jesus and this woman and his followers. And they say, Jesus, we've caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now the law of Moses, which you claim to follow, says that we should stone such a woman. Jesus, what do you say? It's a good trap. Technically, the law does say that. And if, if Jesus says, well, if Jesus says what you think he might say, like hippie, happy Jesus, he'd be like, no, man, it's cool. We all mess up. Well, that is technically a heresy, 
and he goes to jail. However, if he says, yeah, let's kill this woman, the law is the law, then everyone he follows, everyone following him is guilty of this too, pretty much. So they're all going to turn their back on him. So Jesus, seemingly not quite knowing what to do, bends down and he starts to doodle in the sand. As he does this, he's right next to this woman. And she's begging for her life. And he grabs a stone and he stands up. This is what we're going to do, he says. She deserves to die and she begs for her. Now, shh. Whoever here has not sinned, cast the first stone. This is a huge gamble on his part. I don't, let me tell you what I don't think he's saying. I don't think he's saying if you cheated on your taxes, it's the same. Because would, everyone would acknowledge we've all sinned. If you actually look back at the law in the Hebrew scriptures that they were quoting, what it technically says is that if there are two eyewitnesses, and these two eyewitnesses see a pe- people having an affair, having uh, sex outside of marriage, which is, that's creepy already, right? You have to see, two people have to see it with their own eyes, see it happening. And those two people that see it happening cannot be guilty of the same sin or they're discredited as witnesses. So what Jesus is probably saying here is any of you who have not had an affair cast the first stone, which is a big risk for her and for him. And no one throws a stone. It says starting with the oldest down to the youngest, they drop their stones. They walk away. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. Where'd they go? Those who accuse you, they're not here anymore. I don't accuse you either. Look at me. stop you're killing yourself go on there was a a blind man who would sit and beg at the temple He'd been there his whole life. People knew who he was. There, was uh, there were two reasons why people thought you might be born blind. They, had, they always had to have some sort of spiritual reason for something bad happening. So these were legitimate debates that the learned religious scholars would have. If a baby is born blind, they believed it had to be one of two things. Either the parents sinned, the mother or father did something that God had to punish them for, so they gave them a blind baby, or the baby sinned in the womb which is hard to figure out, but uh, part of the thinking was God sees all things so he knows if this baby is born that it will grow up to be a sinner so he preemptively punishes the baby. And they would fight about which one it was. It was an either or choice. The disciples knew about this argument. One of the great things about following Jesus around all day is you could ask him things like this. 
So they see this blind man, and one of the disciples says, Jesus, that blind man there, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, uh, neither. Now, this was done so that the glory of God could be seen today. Excuse me, sir. Would you like to see? Uh, yeah. Okay, my name is Jesus, and I've got some medicine. I'm going to put it on your eyes, all right? He starts making mud in his hand, which is pretty gross. Okay, hold still. That ought to do it. I need you to have someone take you to the pool of Siloam and wash your face, and when you open your eyes, you'll be able to see. Go on. He does, and he can see, and it's a miracle, and he comes back. But let me tell you the most important part of this story. Jesus did this on a Sabbath day. One of the Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, that you are not allowed to work on a Sabbath day. And the Pharisees had made the Sabbath day the most stressful day of the week. <laughs> they had literally, if you stack them up, there were books over my head about what it means to rest and work on the Sabbath day so that no one knew for sure if they were doing it right and they would get in trouble. And one of the things they believed had to happen for Messiah to come was that every single person had to obey the Sabbath rules. And so um, it was, there were all sorts of rules. One of them was that if you were a doctor, you could not help someone on a Sabbath day unless maybe they were going to die. You had to wait till the next day. One of the really obscure rules was that you could not make mud on a Sabbath day. Probably has something to do with house building or bricklaying or something. But this is the only time in any recorded story of Jesus that he spits in the ground and makes mud. And he does it because it's against the law on the Sabbath day to do this. This man goes, and he comes back, and uh, he's just sort of, um, I always imagine him looking like a blue man from Blue Man Group, because now he can see for the first time ever. <laughs> and he's just staring at everyone, and the people start to talk. Who's the creepy guy? I don't know, man. Like, he's been looking at my wife. It's really weird. Like, he looks like the blind guy. Well, that guy's not blind, because his favorite thing to do is see. Well, maybe it's his brother. Why don't you go ask him who it is? Okay, man. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, who are you? Uh, what do you mean? I, I recognize your voice. Thanks for nothing, by the way. I, I, I used to be the, the, ba the beggar, the blind beggar. You can see? Yeah. It's a miracle. That's amazing. How did it happen? Okay. So yesterday, this guy named Jesus came, and he gave me medicine. He just spit on the ground, and he put it in my eyes, and he told me to go wash at the pool of Siloam, and I could see. When? Yesterday. On a Sabbath? Yeah. He, he made mud? He healed? You've been blind your whole life. He chose to heal you? How far did you walk? I don't know, man. I think you're missing the point of the story. <laughs> I, I can see. And, and who did this to you? This, uh, Jesus. What did he look like? What part of the story don't you understand? I was blind. He spit in my eyes. I never saw him. You need to talk to the Pharisees. This is terrible. They bring him in. 
into the temple, and the Pharisees gather all around him. Tell us again, young man, how it is that you're able to see. I told you, this man named Jesus came and he spit. What day did this happen? I told you it was yesterday. That's the Sabbath. Look at a calendar. Yes, that's the Sabbath. Yesterday he came in, he put mud on my eyes, and he told me to go and wash. How far did you walk? I walked to Siloam, and then I could see. Bring in his parents. He's a grown man, maybe in his 30s. They bring his parents in. He's at danger of getting kicked out of the temple, which means he can't worship, he can't be a part of society. His parents come in and they say, is this your son? Yes, yes it is. Was he born blind? Absolutely. Can he now see? Clearly. Uh, His father says, look, we disowned him long ago. We don't want this to affect poorly on us. I don't know what trouble he's gotten into, but we want nothing to do with him. One more time, young man, please tell us how it is that you were able to... Seriously? Again? This man... You know what? Are you asking so many questions about Jesus because you want to be his disciple? What did you say? I said, I just... You're asking a lot of questions. I only know one thing. I was blind and now I see. That's all I know. They get in his face and they say, you were steeped in sin. In the womb, how dare you lecture us? And they take him and they throw him out of the temple. Little poetic license on my part. Imagine him rolling down the stairs and bumping into a man. And he looks up at the man and the man looks down at him. And the blind man who can now see says, do you know who the son of man is? Son of man was, for lack of a better way of saying it, a nickname Jesus gave himself. And this is Jesus, and he says, it's me. And the man wraps his arms around his ankles, and he weeps. And he says, thank you, thank you. And the Pharisees come, and they gather all around Jesus, which was a familiar posture. And this man is weeping and carrying on, and Jesus says to them, do you see this man? This is why I came into the world, so that the blind could see And so that those who see might realize they're blind. Are you saying we're blind, Jesus? No? If you were blind, you can see, but you can see so you're blind. (laughs) Well, shortly after this, they question him more and more, the Pharisees. And they really are trying to figure out, who does this guy think he is? And at one point, Jesus says to them, Father Abraham saw my day and he was glad. Abraham lived thousands of years before. And they say, Father Abraham saw your day. That's amazing. He's been dead forever. And Jesus says, yes, he saw my day. Before Abraham was, I am. That is heresy. I am is the name of Yahweh. Yahweh means I am. They would not say those words about God. They would not utter them. But Jesus says it about himself. They take up stones to kill him. And he has to run away. And now the hero of our story is hiding in the wilderness. Actually right back to where John the plunger was. He tells his disciples, we can't go back to Jerusalem. If we ever go back, they'll kill me. 
And there's a family that Jesus was very close to. Two older sisters and their brother. Mary, a different Mary. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, which was like three miles from Jerusalem, a suburb, if you will. And Lazarus got very sick. So Mary and Martha knew where Jesus was hiding, and they sent word, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. Come save. He's, he's saved so many people. Of course he wants to save his best friend. They find where Jesus is hiding. It's a several-day journey. They say, your friend Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha are asking that you come back to Jerusalem to heal him, and Jesus doesn't go. It would seem like maybe he's afraid. Lazarus ends up dying. And after Lazarus dies a couple days later, Jesus pulls the disciples together and he says, we're going back to Jerusalem. My friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go wake him up. And um, metaphor. Peter says, Jesus, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up on his own. You said that if we go back, they would kill us. That's right. We're going back. And he's fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up, Peter. We leave in an hour. Thomas, who gets a bad rap in this book, because he doubts at the end, who wouldn't? He says, this is a good line. It's like a Steven Seagal line. He says, let's go to Jerusalem with him, and let's die with him. It's a good line. They won't. They'll all get scared and run away, but it's a good line in the moment. <laughs> so they go back towards Jerusalem to Bethany. Funerals are a lot like weddings. They would last many days as well, and there would be mourners, and um, they were on day four of this uh, mourning, and you would actually pay people in the ancient world if you had the money to come and mourn at a funeral. The more people there, the better. Um, some of the Pharisees that were after Jesus would have been mourning and uh, Jesus, Mary and Martha are watching for Jesus and uh, Martha sees him coming down, up from the road and she runs out to meet him and she's angry. She says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You healed so many people you didn't know and your best friend was sick. Shh, Martha, do you believe in resurrection? I believe in the last days, yes, we will all be, no, 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 no. Do you believe? In resurrection. I am resurrection. I am life. Anyone who believes in me, even though they die, will live. Do you believe this? She says, I believe that you're the Christ. Okay. Let's go. They start to walk to the tomb, and Mary runs out her sister. It's like they rehearsed it. Jesus, if you had been here, you healed so many. Shh. Take me to the tomb. And they take him. There's people weeping everywhere. And you can see the Pharisees mumbling, oh, there's Jesus. He's back. With Mary and Martha on either side, he looks at what would have been like a cave with some sort of stone rolled over the mouth of the cave. He starts to weep. Move the, move the stone. Martha says, no, Jesus, it's been four days. He's going to smell. Shh. Move the stone. Father, I pray aloud so that all who are here will know that I am with you and you are with me. Lazarus! 
Wake up! He would have been wrapped up and come kind of waddling out. (laughs) Hundreds of witnesses. This is even better than making bread. (laughs) Make him king, make him king. If he can bring people back to life, the Pharisees are stunned. They pull a quick meeting. What are we going to do? It's better for one man to die than the whole nation be led astray, they say. Yeah, we have to kill him. We have to find a way to kill him and kill Lazarus too. They'll always remember this if he's alive. Yes, we'll kill Jesus and Lazarus. Great irony in killing the guy that just came back from the dead. Well, Jesus finally relents. He lets them make him king. He sits on a donkey, which some people think is how Caesar would go into conquering cities, riding a donkey. He sits on a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem through the gate and thousands of people gather around him and they sing songs. They quote scriptures about him. They wave palm branches. They take their coats off and let the donkey walk. And he comes into Jerusalem as a conquering king. And it's the Passover. It's perfect perfect timing on the calendar. This is the Passover when we remember the deliverance from being slaves in Egypt and they will eat the Passover meal that night with all the symbolism involved including the lamb and here's the lamb of God coming into the city of God to be king. It's perfect. The disciples are already wrangling for cabinet positions and everyone's happy. And that night, they share the Passover. They find an upper room and have the meal prepared, and Jesus and the 12 are there to, to eat the Passover meal. And they're all happy, and Jesus is sort of sad, and they don't know why. And they sit at one long table, all facing the same direction. They don't. That's... <laughs> it's just an easier way to paint it. You understand that, right? They actually recline, typically. Uh, it hurts my elbow, I'm not gonna do it. They recline uh, with their feet out at a smaller table. And uh, you, the most important thing to do before any meal is to wash your feet uh, because your feet are right there in someone's face. And this is a religious thing, but it's also a very practical thing. In the ancient world, they were very committed to open toe sandals And the streets doubled as a sewer system for both human and animal waste. So you literally walk through crap all day long. And you would smell that as you ate if you didn't wash your feet. So before going to anyone's house, before going to eat, they would have a basin there. If they were wealthy, they'd have a slave wash your feet for you. Most places would just say you can wash here. And just like we would wash our hands, you should wash your hands. They wash their feet. The disciples are so excited, they've forgotten to wash their feet. And we're getting ready to have dinner. And only Jesus notices this. So he goes and he gets a basin and a towel. And he starts to wash their feet. 
And they protest. Jesus, what are you doing? We just forgot we'll do it ourselves. Shh, it's fine. Andrew. Guys, uh, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. For the branches to bear fruit, they have to stay connected to the vine. Does that make sense? Stay connected to me. Remain in me. Listen, where I'm going, you can't follow. Jesus, what's wrong? We're all, why are you such a downer? <laughs> Peter. Give me your foot, Peter. Peter, I'm washing your feet. Give me your feet. No. I won't let you. You would never wash my feet. Peter, give me your feet or you can have nothing to do with me. Then wash my whole body. <laughs> wash my face, my hands. Peter, you got dirty feet. Give me your feet. Judas, you can go on and do what you got to do. They're going to uh, arrest me and kill me. And you're all going to, you're all going to leave me. Peter again, not me, Jesus. Yes, Peter. Yeah, you, you're going to deny you even know me three times before the sun comes up. Remember when I said that you have to eat my body and drink my blood? Yeah, we remember Jesus. Okay. This bread is my body. Whenever you eat it, remember me. And this wine is my blood. Whenever you drink it, think about me. Where I'm going, you can't go with me yet. But in my Father's house, there are many... Mansions with many rooms, and I will prepare a place for you. After the meal, he was very troubled, and he asked them to go pray with him at his special place in the garden. And as they're praying in the garden, Judas arrives, leading a group of soldiers and some of the chief priests. And Jesus says, who have you come here for? And they say, we've come here for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I'm he. And it says they fall back. Who have you come here for, Jesus says. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. These, these men have done nothing wrong. Well, they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out his sword and lobs off a guy's ear. He's been packing heat, like since chapter two, and nobody knew. <laughs> and Jesus says, Put that away. No, we, if you live by that thing, you'll die by that thing, Peter. No, this is not how we do this. 
They take him first to the house of the high priest and they ramrod him through this trial in the middle of the night saying things like he said he was going to destroy the temple. He claims to be God himself. And they smack him around. Everyone scatters except Peter and John. They follow at a distance. Peter warms himself by a campfire. And three different times, different people come up and say, I know you, you're the one they call the rock. You're Peter. What's going on with him? He says, I don't know what you're talking about. My name's Simon. They say, y- your accent sounds just like him. You're, you're from the mountains. He says, I- I- listen, I don't know nothing. I don't know this guy. Aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his? I don't know the man. I hope they kill him. He can go to hell for all I care. In that moment, the sun rises and the doors open and Jesus, uh, with his hands tied behind his back, is led out. And Peter breaks and runs away and weeps. Well, they take Jesus to the palace of Pilate. Pilate is the governing ruler over the Jews and over Jerusalem. He's a proxy king of Caesar. Um, and he has to deal with stuff like this all the time. Now, they can't go into a Gentile's house because it's a holy day, it's the Passover, and they're not allowed to go into a Gentile's house. So they, in the, in, very early in the morning, they're yelling for Pilate, Pilate, we have a candidate! Pilate, we have a candidate for crucifixion! Pilate comes out, and I always imagine him in a paisley silk road with a cigar. I had no idea why, uh, but Danny DeVito sort of thing going on with, with my Pilate. And he comes out, he says, what is this? He says, this man, is, uh, this man has committed crimes against our law. And Pilate says, you can deal with him yourself. You have your own laws. No, we want, to, we want to kill him. We want to crucify him. We don't have the authority to do that. Only you can do that. I'm sure it's fine. He's done nothing. Please. Pilate, he claims to be king. He doesn't look like a king. Well, he claims to be one. We only have one king, Caesar. How about you? Bring him in. We can't come in. You're dirty. I mean, you're a Gentile. We can't come in because it's a holy day. We'll send in your king. Jesus comes in. has a one-on-one meeting with the most powerful man in the region. You're a king, huh? You don't look like a king. Is that your own idea? Did someone tell you that? What? Listen, I think we know how this goes, all right? I'm gonna ask you some questions. You're gonna say exactly what I wanna hear, and I'm gonna let you go, and I'm going back to bed. Are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you'd have no authority over me. Oh, God, the answer's no. You say, no. You say, no, I'm not a king. I'm a Jewish peasant. That's what you say. Are you a king or not? Yes. I am. And anyone who's on the side of truth stands with me. Truth. What is truth? What is? Oh, you're crazy. Listen, uh, come with me. Come on, come on out here, out here. They, the Pharisees are all gathered around now. He's out on his terrace. Listen, he's crazy. I find nothing against this man. 
It's my custom to release a prisoner at this time of year to you anyway, so I'm giving him back. He's fine. No, he claims to be king. He's no friend of Caesar. Give us Barabbas. You want Barabbas? Give us. This Barabbas led a revolt earlier that year, probably had many of their children killed. They're like, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. You want Barabbas instead of this guy? Listen, come on. Take, take this guy. I want you to flog him. All right? I want you to give it to him. Flog him 30 times. Bring him back. And, and we'll let him go. So they take Jesus. Pilate's going to really mess him up, and then he's going to bring him back in front and say, look at your king, he's a mess. But he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Well, the Roman soldiers take Jesus, and they uh, strip him of his clothes down to his underwear, tie him to a post, and... uh, He's going to be lashed with a leather whip. It's called a cat of nine tails because it has nine leather strands coming out of it. And the torturers would personalize them. They would take pieces of bone from people uh, that they had killed and tie it into the strands. They would take glass and pottery and tie it in. And the whip was wrong, long enough that it would wrap all the way around your back, the back and rip, rip open the skin, exposing the spine and the ribs as it came around. 30 was the maximum that you could give because most people would die. If you gave more than that, they'd bleed out. And Jesus is given 30. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, wait, just give me... Please just... They untie him and he falls to the ground, fetal position. His charge is being a king, so they take a purple robe and they wrap it around him. And they make these, this crown out of thorns and they press it into his scalp and blood immediately rushes into his eyes. And they say, All hail the king of the Jews! Hey! Hey! We worship you, our king. <laughs> Taking a pilot. He can barely walk. Pilot brings him back again. He's a mess. He says, Look at your king. What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. He's done nothing wrong. Crucify him. Fine. You know, I wash my hands of this. Crucify him. That morning, Jesus was taken to a place called Golgotha. It's the place of the skull. It still looks like that, like a human skull. Two other men were condemned to die with him. And crucifixion was purposely done as a deterrent. It was meant to be excruciating. It was meant to be public. It was meant to be embarrassing. Typically, bodies were left up there for days so that when your children asked, why is there a dead man hanging on that tree? The mother or father would say, well, they did something terrible. They were a traitor. They were a murderer. Don't do that. 
Jesus was forced to carry the horizontal beam of his cross up the hill. And the trained executioners would have dug a hole four to six feet deep and had the vertical section of the cross already there. When Jesus arrived, they would attach the horizontal section to the vertical. And they would often use ropes to crucify people. But sometimes they would use nails. And in Jesus' case, they used nails. Maybe because it made the death go quicker and they wanted to get it done before the holiday the next day. And when they would do it that way, they would uh, uh, stretch out a hand and they would um, put the nail, I'm not a doctor, but between these two bones, avoiding the artery. Uh, oftentimes we imagine them in the palms, palm of his hands, but all, all, of the, all of the body weight would go on, on these nails, so that would just rip out. Um, they knew what they were doing. That would paralyze his hand on both sides, and then they would nail the feet in a similar way. And using a pulley system, they would lift up the cross into that hole that had been pre-dug. And when it fell into the hole, (coughs) um, Jesus' shoulders would have separated. And death on the cross is crucified. Death on the cross is suffocation. You get in such a position that you can't breathe until you... An excruciating pain of holding your body on the nails. Eventually, you collapse into such a position. Jesus only said three words on the cross in John. He sees his mother in John. He says, John, take care of mom. I'm thirsty. They take a stick with a sponge. Instead of dipping it in water, they dip it in vinegar. Joseph, it's not his father, a wealthy man, asked permission to take Jesus' body and put it in his own tomb. And he got the help of one of Jesus' followers, a man named Nicodemus. And they lifted his body down put him in this tomb, put a stone over it. And it's over. 
his followers have given their whole lives to him and he's dead. And they go in hiding in that same upper room where they had the Last Supper. And Mary, not his mother, another one, the next morning, Sunday morning, comes to the tomb to prepare the body. Her biggest fear is that someone would desecrate the body, which would be somewhat typical that maybe they would behead him and put it on the street or something terrible like that. She just wants him to rest in peace, right? And when she arrives, she sees that the stone's been rolled away and she's devastated. She goes and she looks in the tomb and there's nothing there. And she runs back to that upper room and she knocks on the door. And she, she says, they've taken the body. And Peter and John start running to the tomb. And this is evidence in my mind that Peter was a little portly. Because uh, John gets there way ahead of him. <laughs> and John gets there and he's looking in the tomb. And he doesn't see anything. And here comes Peter. Boom, 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 boom. And he brushes past John and goes straight into the tomb. And there's nothing there. They don't know what to do. And they go back to tell the disciples. And Mary is a really bad runner. Because she gets there after they've left. And she looks in one more time. And this time when she looks in, there's two men in white sitting there. And she says, what have you done with him? Please just tell me where you put the body. I won't tell anyone what you did. Please. And from behind, she hears the voice of a gardener. Mary. Please, just tell me where he is. Mary. It's me. Rabbi. She falls on her knees. You're alive? Yeah. Go tell Peter and the disciples that I'm on my way. Well, she's got a lot of exercise this day. She runs. She knocks on the door. She says, he's alive. And he appears in that room. They're all there except Judas, who's killed himself, and Thomas. And they can't believe it. They go and they get Thomas. And they say, hey, Jesus is alive. And he says, nope, saw him die. No, he's alive. Uh, you guys are crazy. That doesn't happen. I won't believe unless I put my finger in the wounds in his wrists and his ankles. Well, they bring him back to that upper room and Jesus appears to Thomas. And he just falls and worships. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you because you see and believe, but more blessed are those who will never see and believe. And there's really just one thing Jesus needs to take care of. It's this strained relationship with Peter and him. They've never talked about the fact that Peter denied him. It's also weird to have a resurrected friend. That's one of the things that becomes obvious. <laughs> because it's not like he's hanging out all the time. He just appears like zapped in from Star Trek or something. And they never know when he's going to appear. And it does seem like sometimes they don't quite recognize him. And so they haven't seen him for a few days. And the disciples are trying to just reeling. Like, what does this mean? And how does this work? And um, You know, the number one rule of studying the Bible is that no one in the Bible knew they were living in Bible times. Does that make sense? So they're not thinking, well, of course this is John chapter 20. 
Well, they're fishermen, most of them, so they decided to go back to work, and they go fishing, and they, would, they fished all night long, caught nothing, which makes for grumpy fishermen. And as the sun is coming up, this, there's a, a figure out, a stranger out on the beach that has a, a fire going. And the man yells out, friends, have you caught any fish? No. Try putting your nets on the other side of the boat. All right, whatever. So they try it, and the fish just jump in the net, and the boat starts to sink because there's so many fish. And Peter looks closer, and he says, that's Jesus. And he takes off his, uh, takes off his clothes, and he jumps, this is very Peter, jumps into the water and starts swimming, like Lieutenant Dan, swimming all the way. And then he swims all the way to the shore because he's got to get to Jesus. And he starts to crawls, portly Peter, crawls onto the shore, at exactly the same time the boat gets there. And he, he stops at this fire. And uh, Jesus looks at him, gets some fish, starts to make him breakfast. Jesus says, Simon, calls him Simon, do you love me more than these? I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. If you're talking about the fish, yes. If you're talking about my friends, yes, yes, Jesus, I love you more than everything. Then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you really love me? Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you. Quit asking, please. Then feed my lambs. And you go on a walk along the shore. John actually follows behind at a distance. One more time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. You're going to die a terrible death. It's going to be very hard for you. But you're a rock. I need you to take care of them. They're going to bind your hands and feet and arrest you, torture you. But feed my sheep. And Peter says, What's going to happen to John? Peter says, That's not for you to worry about, Peter. John concludes this book like this. He says, There are many other stories about Jesus that I didn't include. I suppose that if someone were to write every story about Jesus, the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But these words were written so that you might believe in him and that in believing in him you might have life. Life. That's what we all want. Real life. The kind of life that turns water to wine at a party the kind of life that rips up a church building when it's not right. The kind of life that goes into enemy territory and makes friends. We want the kind of life that, um, politically speaking, it's not about us filling our bellies, but it's about extending love to others. We want that 
kind of life. We want the kind of life that if we've been blind our whole lives, we can see. And if we think we know everything our whole lives, we will realize we're blind. We want that kind of life. We want a kind of life that wakes us up when we're dead. That's the life we want, real life. And we want life that knows for certain that there's hope. That's my hope for you. Whatever you make of the story, whether you build your entire faith on it or you just see it as some interesting story of antiquity, we can all walk out of here seeking life. And that's what I hope you remember. Because it's what we need. Right? Real life.